We're going to be in John chapter 8. You heard uh, David read earlier from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. We're going to consider this idea of Jesus as the light of the world. But I want to begin this morning reading from Genesis 1. I want you to remember what was happening at the beginning. As God created everything, there was a period of darkness. And so let me read Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, and how God spoke light into the darkness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So in the beginning, utter darkness, complete darkness, pitch black. The earth is just a blank sphere floating in a black sea. There's no day, only night. There's no light, only darkness. And then God says, let there be light. And immediately, brilliant, radiant light fills the universe. That is an amazing contemplation for us, isn't it? To imagine what that would have been like to, to observe creation, the creation of light. Well, that's not the only amazing time when God spoke light into the world. When God sent forth His Word to illumine the world. We see that in the Gospel of John as well. We're going to be in chapter 8, but let me read from chapter 1. We've been seeing this throughout John's Gospel, this idea that Jesus is the light. There's all these different metaphors. We're talking about Jesus as the bread. Jesus as living water, things like that. But he also refers to himself as light. And in the beginning of the Gospel account, we read this about the coming of Jesus into this dark world. Not just to illuminate the environment as we read in Genesis 1, but to illuminate the very hearts and souls of men and women. I'll turn the lights on inside of us today as well. So read with me John chapter 1, verse 1 on to verse 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. There was the true light... Referring to Jesus, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. That's Jesus, the true light. Enlightening every man, enlightening every person, enlightening every child, enlightening everyone with a pulse. Helping us to see clearly. Helping us to see clearly who our Creator God is, the one behind all of this the one who has made all things and who sustains all things and who's responsible for upholding all things by the word of his power, even right now, sustaining your very body as you sit there in the chair. The life that he's given you. Jesus, the true light, helps us to understand just who our creator is. And he helps us to understand who we are 
to understand more clearly ourselves, to see more clearly the good of who God created us to be, His good design. We're all fearfully and wonderfully made to understand the personality He gave us and the family that we were born into and the environment we were born into and the life experiences we've had and our aptitudes and capabilities and our strengths and our weaknesses and all that to understand more clearly who He made us to be and to understand along with that our fallenness, our selfishness, the blinders sometimes to other people, the things that cause us to exploit others, to harm others. How how clearly do we understand ourselves? Well, as one author put it years ago, the more deeply we come to know God, and not just intellectually, but the more deeply we come to know Him through His Word and intimately and relationally, something happens along with that. We come to know ourselves as well. And the more we come to know ourselves clearly, the more we come to know God clearly because we see who we are and then we realize how He has treated us. And it becomes even more clear just how magnificent He is. You have trouble living with you. (laughs) He knows you perfectly. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways. And He loves you. You are known and loved by your Creator, God. Jesus is the light of the world. That's part of what it means that He came to be the embodiment of light. And so here we are in John 8. And our main verse is going to be verse 12. The rest of the passage we'll talk about, but really the main verse is verse 12 because this is where Jesus makes this great declaration. Read it again with me. Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you've been with us for weeks now, we've been talking about this section of John where there has been a feast, the Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles there in Jerusalem. And the people were congregating, many, many people there meeting in Jerusalem. And Jesus has been capitalizing on some of these rituals and symbols and ceremonies to show that He is the fulfillment of all the types and all the shadows of the Old Testament. And this is no exception. There's something very interesting going on in their midst as Jesus declares Himself to be the light of the world. And as I've been doing, I want to do Again, this morning, I want to explain to you what was happening in terms of their, their, uh, their rituals and their ceremonies. And, and also, actually, I'm going to start with this. The, the season itself was a perfect time for Jesus to make this statement. Because this season, in their calendar, it fell during a time known as the end of the autumn equinox. Okay, And what that means is, this was the period in which day and night, are equal in length. That's the equinox. Well, that was coming to an end such that night was becoming dominant. Days were shorter. The transition time was called by some the time of the dying of the sun. And during this time of the dying of the sun, with increasing darkness and decreasing light, the people were affected by the loss of light, keenly aware of the value of light. There's no electricity back then. They experienced darkness. So seasonally, the environment they were in, they were familiar with darkness. And it's in that setting Jesus says, I am the light of the world. There are ceremonial signs. Let me read a little summary of the ceremonial signs. During that time, in the feast, they would set up four massive candelabras in the outer court of the temple, 
Each candelabra had on it four huge golden bowls, so a total of 16 bowls. Each bowl was filled with oil and contained a large wick made of priestly garments. These 16 giant bowls were lit each night. They would burn like enormous candles, filling the temple with light. And not only the temple, but the rabbis said that the light would fill the entire city of Jerusalem at that time, beautifully reflecting off the yellow limestone walls of the surrounding buildings. It would literally cause the whole city to glow, such that one ancient Jewish writer said there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect this marvelous light. Meanwhile, the sound of beautiful music would be reverberating throughout the temple as Levitical orchestras played, as choirs sang praises to God. The people would be out in the streets singing and dancing and carrying fiery torches. It was a joyous celebration, all centered around the light of God, the people of God, remembering when God led them. He led them with a pillar of fire and the cloud by day and all the ways God provided for them. They were rejoicing and celebrating. And in this setting, Jesus stands up and says, it's all pointing to me. I'm the light of the world. I'm the embodiment of the light of God. I'm the messianic light you've been looking for. And as with the living water, we talked about this several times recently. But as with the living water, so also with the light. There were all these Old Testament prophecies about the time of the coming of the Messiah And associated with his coming was this idea of light, brightness, radiance, glory. Greater glory than they'd even seen. And they had seen some pretty spectacular things. Great glory. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We're going to talk more about what that light of life means. But first, let's consider what it looks like to walk in the darkness. And sadly... As we've been seeing, we see it again this morning, we see it with the Pharisees, because there they were, religious people committed to the Scriptures, committed to the things of God, dutiful, pious, and yet God is right there with them in the flesh, and they don't recognize Him. And not only do they not recognize Him, it's not just that they're passively oblivious, they're angry with Him, furious. He's a threat to all that they hold dear, what they value, their system, their way of thinking. Their self-righteousness, their greed, their desires, all of it, he's a threat. So in verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying of yourself. Your testimony is not true. We've been seeing where Jesus at times will turn their statements back around on them. Well, they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to do the same thing to him because they know earlier in John chapter 5, he had said, if someone testifies themselves, their testimony is not true. And he says, even if I testify of myself, my testimony is not true. But my father testifies of me. It's back there in John, or John chapter 5. You could, you could look back there. So they're saying, well, hey, you said this yourself. So now you're testifying. You're making this great declaration that you're the light. Well, who are you to say that? And what witnesses do you have? And what kind of corroboration do you have for this claim? And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 14, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, which is a way of saying, look, yeah, in your world, this is kind of your convention that through the mouths of two or three witnesses, let everything be established, but I'm speaking truth. Every, every word that I utter from my mouth is truth. And then he goes on to talk about knowing where he came from and where he's going. And he says, but you don't know where, I'm come, where I've come from or where I'm going. You're clueless. You don't know. 
You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. I'm just speaking the truth. Even if I do judge, however, verse 16, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. He says, I'm the one who sees everything clearly. My Father's the one who sees everything clearly. When we say something's true, it's true. But they're questioning, as we've been talking about, they're skeptical, they're suspicious of him, and they're angry with him, and I mean, think of the audacity. I mean, they're arguing with God. Verse 17, even in your law, it's been written, the testimony of two men is true. So he's speaking to their law and their way of thinking through such things. He says, but I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So more opposition and probably grumbling. They were saying to him, where is your father? We don't see him. Well, who, who are you talking about? Of course, they knew he was speaking of God as his father, but they didn't buy it. And so questioning him, and he just says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to seize him. They're already conspiring to put him to death, but it wasn't God's time yet. So they couldn't succeed. But you sense the opposition. And I want us to think about why they missed it, why they were so fiercely opposed to him. What was it about him that just cut to the core of their soul, that they were so offended by? What was it? They had all the Old Testament pointing forward to him. Uh, We had a little conversation Wednesday night. We are talking about, in one sense, humanly, we can kind of understand them missing him because certain things weren't crystal clear there in the Old Testament, and that's true. But they, they ought to have been prepared from the heart, like the eyes of the heart, the eyes of the soul. They ought to have been prepared at that level, and they were not. And there's a reason they were not, and I want us to turn to Romans 9 to see what that reason was, why they missed him. So turn with me to Romans 9. As we think about people walking in darkness, he said, those who believe in me, those who follow me, will not walk in darkness. Well, these people were walking in darkness. And Romans 9 helps us understand what was underneath it. Begin in verse 30. Paul says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Even the righteousness which is by faith. I mean, the outsiders, they are the ones that attained righteousness. The people in John 8, those are the insiders. Those are the Israelites. Those are the ones who should have known better. He's saying, but the outsiders actually, they, they got it. But Israel did not. Verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. What is the stumbling stone? Who is the stumbling stone? Go ahead with the Sunday school answer. Jesus. You can never go wrong with that answer. Technically you can, but in this instance you would be right. Verse 33, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So you see, the issue was they were holding on to their own works, trying to attain their own righteousness, approaching the law that way. 
These were diligent students of the Old Testament. Some of them had entire books of the Torah memorized. Great efforts, painstaking efforts to know the Bible, and yet missed their Messiah. And this is why. Because they were pursuing righteousness as if it were by their efforts. Paul goes on to say in chapter 10, and remember the the chapters and verses, those were added later. These are just thoughts that Paul had the logic disclose. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for, for Israel to God is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Which is another way of saying they're blind. For not knowing about God's righteousness, and instead seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes Jesus is saying, look, I'm the light of the world. I'm perfectly righteous. Believe in me. Trust in me. And the resistance within them came from that place that said, no, I've got to establish my own. I've got to work for my own. I've got to make myself righteous. And don't you dare take that away from me. I need some dignity in life. Unlike, by contrast, for those who were with us last week, the woman caught in adultery. She was thrown, thrust into the light, wasn't she? Thru- right there. Hey, we caught her right in the act of adultery. There's all this question about where was the guy, and there's this confusion about why didn't he get dragged before. We don't know. The Pharisees covering for him. We don't even know. But she gets dragged up there, plopped in front of Jesus, and, I mean, she is exposed for the whole world to see. She is in the light. This is the way it is. Under no delusion of her own ability to be righteous whatsoever, just needy for grace and for mercy. And that's exactly what Christ gives her because he is the end of the law for righteousness to those who will believe. To be clothed, to be covered. There's a text in Isaiah. I don't have it written down in front of me, but there's a text in Isaiah where it talks about the robes of righteousness, how God covers us with his robes of righteousness. That's exactly what Christ did for her back then and what he does for us But there's this catch. There's a catch to it. The only people eligible are the ones who are willing to admit, I've got nothing. I've got no righteousness. I can't work for righteousness. The Pharisees were, turn to John chapter 3, they were hiding in the darkness of their own self-righteousness, of their own rituals and all their routines and all their smiling faces when they went into the sanctuary or when they went into the outer courts of the temple or wherever they were, all the superficial stuff, but they were hiding. And light exposes, and they didn't like it. So John chapter 3, starting in verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Do you see the distinction? The distinction between the righteousness of our own making, which is just a sham. It's just a sham. Even when we're good at it, and we might fool a lot of people in church, in the community, but deep down we know, and the people we live with, they know, don't they? 
They know. They know your version of crazy. I don't know what it is that makes you crazy, but something makes you crazy. The dishes aren't all done, or there's an insistence that the dishes all get done. One person in the family hates to have fun, hates it. We save money, we never spend a dime, and everyone else suffers under that regime. The other person, hey, let's just spend and spend and spend and spend and spend, and they crush the family down with weights of financial burdens and debt, and everyone suffers under that. We can get the the outside cleaned up. Church folks, we are good evangelicals, good at cleaning up our sexual ethic and our work ethic and our political viewpoints and things like that, but we all know in the stillness, in the quiet, your flesh is nuts. It's true. I read someone years ago, a counselor, marriage counselor, and he said it's too bad that in marriage counseling, like premarital counseling, that the counselor doesn't just cut to the chase and say, all right, so now how are you crazy? And how are you crazy? Let's talk about that. Because it's true. Jesus came to expose the crazy of humanity, the fallenness of humanity, and where it stems from. And you know where it stems from? Not just that we tend to do bad things behaviorally on the outside. It stems from the fact that we, in and of ourselves, naturally speaking, do not see our God for who He is. We do not see His character for what it is. We, do, we are not fully convinced that He is good and that He is taking good care of us every moment in the ups and downs and the twists and turns of life. This is our fundamental problem. We don't see the righteousness of God that He is right in all that He does. Naturally speaking, we are blind to that. And Jesus came to reveal it with greatest clarity. That's why He says later, when you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. This is the most clear manifestation of God you're going to get. So He says, believe, trust in Me for righteousness. Accept the exposure John chapter 3, we just read, men love darkness rather than light. The deeds are evil. So what do they do? Scurry into the darkness. Scurry into the shadows. Don't want to be exposed. This is why he ticked these people off so badly. Because he just shined the light on them and they couldn't fool anyone anymore when he just pulled the facade down, pulled the mask down. They all saw who the people really were. Oh, John the Pharisee, you all thought he was such a great guy, man of integrity, family man, this and that. Oh, it turns out he's actually a scoundrel. He's actually greedy. He's actually stealing from people money. He's actually mistreating people and mistreating his family and mistreating women and everything else. And that, I mean, think about the outrage. How dare you come around here to our place and show us up? Not in our city. Do you see what was motivating their rage toward him? But for the woman caught in adultery, for me and for you, there's an invitation to just be honest. <laughs> I need you, Christ. You're the one that relates rightly to your Father, to the people around you. You serve and love and give and are patient and long-suffering and merciful. And by nature, Jesus, I'm not. And I get myself into all kinds of trouble. I have all these ways of sabotaging my own mental health and well-being and the people around me, and I'm just a mess. But you're good, and you love me, and you cover me, 
and you invite me to come and walk with you in the light, in the truth. You could think, boy, if I were only there, I, um, you know, I, would, I would get it. I would see him. But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The tendency of all of us to think, well, yeah, I, boy, I wouldn't be like that. Well, our flesh is like that. And thankfully, God has opened our eyes and is opening our eyes. And that's part of what the light entails. Walking in the light, following Jesus, knowing that he is the source of all that is good, all that is alive and life-giving. Knowing that the problem primarily is inside of us, not outside of us. Pharisees were always focused on the bad people out there and all but oblivious to the bad person in here. And Jesus invites us to just own up for that. Call that what it is, to see that as our greatest threat. Greatest threat to our own sense of contentment, greatest threat to our own sense of joy, greatest threat to our own sense of well-being, the greatest blinder to the needs of others right around us. The ordinary opportunities to serve just blind to them because we're just so still superficially motivated, always focused on pointing the finger and dealing with the evil outside of us. And, and Jesus says, just come. Come into the light. Come walk with me. Come have the light of, of life, fellowship with God and with others. Walking in the light in John 8 verse 12, he doesn't explicitly mention walking in the light, but it's there by implication because he talks about walking in the darkness. So the alternative would be walking in the light. And what that entails, first of all, is just walking with God. Seeing more and more clearly who he is, his great kindness and generosity, and being honest about our own limitations and our own distortions. It uh, involves that kind of clarity and because this theme of light recurs throughout Scripture, and in particular, the Apostle John wrote a lot about light. And I want you to see uh, one other place in 1 John. We've been flipping around quite a bit. But if you turn to 1 John with me, we're just going to th- see what walking in the light looks like in relationship with others. And this is fascinating. Walking with Jesus in the light, what it looks like in relation with others. And as you're turning there, remember... Remember what we looked at in Romans 9 and 10? The effort of men to create their own righteousness by their own efforts, by their own behavior, by their own works, by their own rituals and commitments and dedication and disciplines and whatever else. We said that that was the root problem in missing Jesus and the the invitation to simply believe and trust in Him for good and for fruit. They missed it. And so now we get to 1 John and same author here is the gospel of John and he's developing this theology of light having walked with Jesus having heard the teaching of Jesus having himself been exposed by Jesus and this is what he says in verse 5 of chapter 1 this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. He's talking about fellowship and a necessary ingredient of true fellowship. Not just like, hey, how are you, Bob? Good, Ralph, how are you? Good, okay, I'll see you later. Okay, I'll see you later. See you next week. Like true, genuine, intimate fellowship demands honesty about our own brokenness and fallenness. And that makes me nervous. Does it make you nervous? Just a little bit. I mean, to really be known by other people and seen by other people. Well, uh, sorry to tell you, actually, they do see and know some of it. That's why in conversations, when we engage in gossip and things like that, we'll talk about another person and we all know, oh, yeah, he, wow, you know, he's crazy in this way. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah, he's nuts. Oh, yeah, she's she, crazy? Wow, that, 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 right? You know, you know those conversations. I know you've never had those conversations. Well, let's just say someone else is having it and you happen to overhear it. No, we all do, right? We, we observe these things. We notice these things. What he's talking about here is that we walk in the light where, where Jeff Pierce is just exposed. The good, the bad, and the ugly. That this is fellowship. Walk in the light of honesty and truthfulness. The way it really is. Not what we're trying to curate. Not like your Facebook profile. Best picture, best scene, everybody's smiling. Five seconds later, everyone's at each other's throats. But for that little moment, when the camera was right doing the thing, everybody was good. The real stuff. We all know it. We all live with it. We walk around with it. We drive around with it. This is fellowship requires honesty. And the deepest fellowship comes when we confess our sins. Ours. Mine. Happy to confess your sins. It's very easy for me to do. <laughs> happy to point it out, just like last week. Happy to throw the stone. Mine. Not as excited, naturally speaking, to talk about that. But God says this is, this is where fellowship happens as we walk in the light. The church isn't designed to be a place to strive for a righteousness of our own making, to hide or to ignore our unrighteousness. It's not designed for that. Fig leaf stuff that goes back to the garden, the little false coverings. It's not designed for that. It's a place to admit our unrighteousness and to trust in and cling to His to experience together the amazing cleansing of our sins through Christ, to walk together marveling over and reminding one another of how deeply we've been loved by our God despite our unworthiness. That God loves you at your worst while we were yet sinners. And that's not just, well, they do some bad things. Like shaking our fist in God's face. He says, I love you and I cover you. At your ugliest. That's, that's wow. It's an amazing kind of love. That's why Paul says, I pray to the Ephesians that you may know, that your eyes may be open, that you may see the light of the breadth and length and height and depth, the infinite dimensions of the love of God for you in Christ. That's what you were created for, was to see that glory. It's the only thing that will satisfy the soul 
is to be known and loved by your Creator and to know Him and love Him in return. And he says that happens in the light of the truth. Honesty. Close with just a few, few additional thoughts that just flesh this out a bit more. I, there's a book uh, years ago I read, and some of you may have heard me mention this. It's on the concept of self-righteousness and self-justification and the plague that is to each one of us. And regarding friendship and good relationship, intimate relationship, this is what they said, these two authors of the book, co-authors. Our greatest hope of self-correction lies in making sure we are not just operating in a hall of mirrors in which all we see are distorted reflections of our own desires and convictions. We need a few trusted naysayers in our lives. Critics who are willing to puncture our protective bubble of self-justification and yank us back to reality if we veer too far off. Now, I don't want you to answer this. I don't want you to raise your hand or anything else. But I just, I'm just going to ask you, and I want you to think about, do you have anyone in your life like that? A trusted friend whom you trust with the ugliest parts of who you remain who you still are. Someone you can trust to just say, hey, this, I'm struggling with this or that. Someone who will hear what you're saying with an awareness of the love of God for them and for you and be able to speak truth to you. Be able to help you un- unravel that a little bit to see, yeah, why is it that I get so wrapped around, or so bound so tightly around the axle over that or this or whatever. I mean, I think we would all agree whether we have such a person or a few of those people or not that there is value to having such a person. I think we all would agree on that. Well, this is what the Bible is referring to with New Testament fellowship, the church. It's a little different than the way we tend to think about church with activities and other things, which are fine, but we tend to major on the other things and sometimes we don't just see that That is what walking in the light is, and that's what we are here for, primarily. And that's where healing is found. You know, what does the light do? It it, it exposes, it reveals, shows what really is, and it warms. The earth wouldn't be alive, it wouldn't be life and growth and organic fruitfulness without light, would there? Because it's just a metaphor. It's just a symbol. It's just imagery just describing something about God who sees all of us every moment as it really is. And says, I invite you to just walk in my truth together. That's a great, great offer, a great gift. And I hope that we can, in our own individual lives and with maybe our close circle or within our church context that we can walk in the light, that we can welcome exposure, uh, not to be an end in and of itself. Not some, I'm not talking about some like kind of morbid introspection or picking each other apart every second of every day, and we tend to do that naturally speaking anyway. But what I'm talking about is like all with the endeavor to see our Savior, to be amazed by Him, to celebrate Him, His great salvation, and the depths to which He went to save us. Not just stopping with like the superficial stuff, 
the external stuff, but going right down to the core of our being and speaking truth to us, and love to us, and healing to us, and redemption to us, and restoration to us. And that's magnificent. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the great physician. He loves you more than you love yourself, which is kind of hard to imagine, but he does. He loves you more than anyone else, and he gives us the ability in human fellowship as we walk with him to be honest, to be real, and to delight together in the warmth of his light and love. Let's close in prayer. And we'll have the worship team come back up. Father, thank you for your word. It's a record of Jesus' great declaration. Everything going on in their midst, in the temple. And all the trappings and all the distractions and all the symbols and details. And right there, you stand up and say, I am the light of the world. Through your Son, you declare that you're the light. That without you, we can't see. We can't see our world clearly. We can't see ourselves clearly. We cover and hide and justify unhealthy, harmful parts of ourselves and we exploit others big ways, small ways. And Jesus stands and says, I'm the light of the world. And we know, God, that part of His radiant light is not only the light of exposure, but the light of warmth. The life-giving light. The light of fellowship with you in truth. The light of fellowship with others in truth. Confessing our sins to one another. Praying for one another that we might be healed. God, we need your healing. We're thankful that in Jesus you provide that healing. We're thankful that it all begins foundationally with seeing you for who you really are. Not figments of our imagination, not subject to our own private interpretation, or even some traditionally passed down interpretation that distorts and mischaracterizes you and truncates your amazing grace and mercy and justice. But God, the full spectrum of your attributes unfolded before us through the person and work of Jesus. And so as we close this prayer, God, we think of him hanging on the cross for us saying to you, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God, we don't even understand what you do and you cover and you heal and you cleanse and you restore. And God, we're just amazed. We're undeserving. We give you all the praise and all the credit. And we're thankful. And so we rejoice. Uh, Be with us as we sing this song. And we look forward to our time in just a few minutes of fellowship together. In Jesus' name. Amen.